What's up, everyone? Yavitz Djurjevic here with another episode. Today, we've got Willie Shaw on the episode. Great conversation. Talked a lot about what it's like to be a singer-songwriter in Nashville and the quote-unquote inspiration needed to produce art in the manner in which those talented folks do it. And also just the different addictions that we as human beings can struggle with and how it can keep us from developing true and meaningful relationships and how the different aspects of our life intertwine with each other and connect to other parts that might be holding us back or might be pushing us forward in some direction, whether that's arrogance or even to an extent needing to have proof or social proof from from an audience. Great conversation. Had a lot of fun recording this. I think you guys will enjoy it. Willie, what's up, man? Not much. Just enjoying my my nice Monday here. Your nice Monday here in my office. Yeah. You know what? Uh, you know what breaks my heart, Willie? <laughs> Hopefully not too much. Oh no! What breaks my heart? I get it. You're a celebrity and all now, <laughs> but you were probably one of the first people I told about this podcast. I remember when I sent you the logo oh, after go. it was made. Here we go. And it took us like 40 episodes for you to come on here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have a uh, great reason for that. <laughs> it's just kind of happened that way. I told Tamara, I was like, Willie's just Willie's just waiting to make sure I'm legit. Put his name <laughs> on something. something like that. Or I needed to make sure that I wouldn't step on my own landmines and sink my own future career that hasn't happened yet. So Probably. Okay, that's that's probably a good, good yeah. explanation. Uh, so I got Willie Shaw with me. For folks who have no idea who you are, give us a 10,000-foot view of who Willie is. Yeah, my name is Willie Shaw. Um, I'm a singer-songwriter here in town um, working on an artist career. <clears throat> kind of in the beginning stages uh i've started in in august doing that but you know before that i uh, i grew up in orange county southern california uh played sports my whole life accepted a scholarship to william and mary uh played baseball out there um senior year tore my labrum had surgery redshirted got a master's of accounting moved to nashville and uh worked in finance for a little bit and just some crazy doors opened that led me back to music after um kind of trying to run away from it in a weird way. Um, and I'm, I'm back in music and, and I love it. It's completely different than the typical corporate world I'm used to, but it's been, uh, I figured before I get a family and mortgage and all that kind of stuff, I should try this now as opposed to then and try to explain that, Hey, I'm going to be in the studio till 3am tonight, honey. I'll see you yeah. when I see you. Hopefully Good luck you changing get diapers. The, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> Well, cool. Well, so talk to us a little bit about growing up in Orange County. You and I have ch- chatted a little bit about that because you went from Orange County to Virginia and yeah. William & Mary, played baseball there, and then came to Nashville. Uh, from a, just growing up as an adolescent man into the man that you are today, those are very three different parts of the world. Very much so, yeah. Very, you know, Orange County is self-described the most vain place on earth probably. <laughs> yeah. William & Mary is like a history buff's paradise, and then right. Nashville is like hipster grunge southern city. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't realize uh, there, there's kind of an arrogance growing up in Southern California because uh, I fully believe that it was the greatest place in the world to live. No way. Um, yeah. Right. I, everybody's beautiful. Everybody has money. Every scenic thing you could think of, whether it's desert, mountain or beach is within driving distance. Um, <clears throat> that uh, that kind of you know bit me in the butt a little bit as I was going through my I guess formative years would be the accurate term through the end of high school through uh, college because I, I mean, it was just pure arrogance and ego that I think when you're a product of the environment and the environment is focused, not fully, but mostly on vanity 
and uh, who has what. It's very much a, a, a game of comparison at mm. most times. And whether that was in the classroom with how smart you were or in the social scene of how, if you were a prom king or whether that was um, what scholarships you had or what visits you were going on. I think that that's probably common through most, you know, middle class to upper affluent areas, but, um, it's, it's humanity at its you know core really. And I got humbled plain and simple. I got humbled and had to go to junior college because all my, my scholarships disappeared because I thought I was amazing and baseball has a game of humbling you. Mm. And, uh, and my senior year of high school, I, I just played terribly ended up going to junior college and, and ended up getting a scholarship to a great school. And I've met some amazing people over there, but the transition from that to Virginia's South, I guess, Williamsburg, Virginia, it's kind of, it's a it's, different kind of, it's right. It's, it's exactly. It's a little bit different, but was shocking to me. And I remember one of the first, there was two things, my first trip home, my junior year of college, uh, going back home for Thanksgiving, two things that I noticed. One, I had forgotten that acrylic nails were a thing. So I immediately knew that I was on a flight back to California because every <laughs> woman had acrylic nails on. And I completely, <clears throat> I had completely forgotten that that was a thing, a thing really. Yeah. yeah. And number two, my parents thought something was wrong with me because I didn't talk as much. And when I spoke, I spoke slower. Huh. So it was like, not the, Hey, how are you doing? Like, everything's good. Oh my God. Like the very fast paced lifestyle of Southern California. And although, I mean, there's kind of a misconception, like there's the beach bum, like talk slow, everything's good all the time. And then there's like the kind of metropolitan, like yeah. no different than New York, I would think really, then I don't have time for anybody or anything. I'm going to say this and then I need to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the two things I noticed. And, and I really just fell in love with the people, honestly. I think that, you know, Southern charm is very much a real thing. And, and people, when I ended up moving to Nashville, one of the distinct characteristics, and this is still to this day how I explain Nashville to people, and I think why so many people are coming here, but from where I'm from, the first question is, what do you do? Mm. When I came to Nashville, the first question was, who are you? Mm. Followed by, what do you do? Yeah. Almost like, hey, I want to find out that you're respectable yeah. before I even figure out if we're you know, compatible in a business relationship or a friendship or a community group, you know, whatever the case is. And I think that that's slightly different on the coast. Now, granted, take it with a grain of salt. That's a large overgeneralization. But in my experience, that's kind of what I've noticed from a cultural shift. Um, the other thing that culturally is the cooking, obviously. Yeah. Uh, very much miss great Mexican food. Okay. But <laughs> um, Are you telling me we don't have great Mexican food? <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of hard to mess up Mexican food, realistically, but no, it's, it's good. But there's something about going to like a little taco hut near the beach where like, if you look at the kitchen, there's no way it passes a health inspection, but you're like, <laughs> I want to eat there. Cause that's probably got the best food. You know, you might not feel great afterwards, <clears throat> a couple hours after, but yeah. But yeah, that's probably the other characteristic of, uh, of my transition that I've noticed. So you mentioned the word humble, particularly your senior year and then. You know, we I've, I've discussed this with other former athletes. We've had several people play in the NFL and track and basketball and things like that on the podcast. And I relate to it, not from an athletic standpoint, but, you know, if you know a 22-year-old Yavitsa, <laughs> it was just irrational confidence right. for no reason whatsoever. Like, none right. of it's deserved. It's just like irrational confidence. I'm going to put my head through a wall and I'm going to get whatever I want. Right. Get off of me. And then life starts kicking you in the face over and over again, whether it's the health of a parent or whether it's your own health or mistakes you may come back to bite you in the butt. 
talk to me about that humbling experience. You know, what, what kind of comes to mind when you think through that? Man, I, I think of kind of shake my head, palm face emoji, really. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of this will, will sound conceited, but it's very much a part of my, my transition into who I, who I am and who I'm becoming. So, uh, in high school, uh, I was very popular. I sang in high school. Mm. I played multiple sports. I was, I think I was homecoming king or prom queen, prom queen, prom king. Um, <laughs> but so from a social perspective, I had checked a ton of boxes and that started to go to my head really. Yeah. I, and, and something that I've noticed now as a songwriter, basically I just, I'm similar to a comedian is that I make observations and yeah. write about them and try and shine light on things that other people kind of, it's there. Everybody knows it's there, but kind of just bring it into the light, so to speak. I mean, you have a song called a, a good liar. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do have one of those. And I think that the, what it is, is a misdefinition of things that matter. Mm. And at the end of the day, so my biggest struggle, I completely misdefined love as a whole, right? So if you, if you go, whether it's romantic or to a parent or a family, or- <clears throat> even more so than that, I define love as so, like social acceptance okay, and, and physical touch, like intimate touch okay, in relationships with females, right? So girlfriends and, and hugs, kissing that, that overwhelming feeling of that kind of gives you like a masculine sense of like, I've got all my ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. I feel great about this. And that's something that a lot of arrogance was behind that. But at the root level, as I've kind of discovered, okay, so why did I do that? Why did I act like that? Why did I, why do I look back on certain scenarios in my past? I'm sure like everybody does yeah. and say, man, did, if I could do that again, I would completely do it differently. Yeah. And it was truly out of a misdefinition of love. So I think the Greeks have four definitions of love and you'll probably have to help me figure out all of them, but it's phile is brotherly love. Agape is romantic love, I believe. And there's the two others which relate back to service of some kind. I don't think agape is romantic. You might be right, but I don't, uh, I think agape is fam- familial love. Okay. So there's, but the gist of it is there's, there's brotherly love, there's acts of service love, yeah. there's romantic love. And then from, like you said, family love. Yeah. And then when you cross reference that with the five love languages, you've got, yeah. you know, kind of a, a greater spectrum of love in essence. And then it, as a believing Christian, you know, we've got our definition of love, which is, you know, love is patient, love is kind of so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, but my, I, my definition of love was just so far off true North yeah. that it just led me into snares left and right. Yeah. Your definition of love is acceptance. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> when it creates a, a false base, when you're, when you're, ground level is not, you know, like I said, it's off true north and everything you're building on top of it is about to crumble. Exactly. Which probably good from a songwriter standpoint, because you've got a lot of stuff to write about. Right. Yeah. A lot of observations you can make. And a lot of heartbreak to go with it. But I think that's, what's powerful about what you said. So the, I never thought about it, but the comedian comment you just made, the reason comedians are funny is because they're making observations about the everyday things. And it's like, wow, that's really funny because it's true, but nobody's willing to say it. But it's okay in this weird bubble to say it. Right. The reason people connect, the reason you get goosebumps when you listen to a specific song is because it, it connects to something that you have an emotional connection to. Right. So let's talk about that. Like how has, obviously you went out of finance, accounting, all that stuff, very right. ticky-tack, like numbers, yeah. uh, you know, debits, credits, et cetera, to, 
<laughs> nightmares essentially. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just sitting, <laughs> just sitting in a studio until three a.m. Writing, producing, singing, etc. You know what? What's that like being in that environment as a young man? Because you're what, twenty six, twenty seven? Yeah, twenty six. Yeah. So young, you're still not. A, I mean, your prefrontal cortex basically developed last year. <laughs> so <laughs> right, right. Talk to us about that. Um, it, well, first, it was a huge change. Huge change. Just priorities and and everything's a huge change. I mean, my day went from, you know, waking up early to read newspapers to make sure I didn't sound like an idiot in front of clients working till 7 PM yeah. to now my first song, right. Is usually at 11 AM every day. And depending on how long that goes, it usually finishes around three, maybe, you know, depending on the song, it could be shorter than that or longer. And then uh, if I'm singing in, in the studio, whether doing vocals or, or production with a producer um, that can, there's no real time limit on that. But so from that perspective, scheduling is just a, a different perspective entirely. Um, I think one of the most glaring things that I notice is essentially when you are writing a song, so Nashville's structure, let me back up and kind of tell you how songwriting works in Nashville. Um, so there's a, a bunch of publishing houses and they have songwriters signed to them on a roster. Yep. And then they say, hey, we like your writer. Let's do a co-venture with your writer, with one of our writers, and hope that all parties love it. And it either gets cut by an artist or released by one of our own artists. And that way, royalties and everything get split up. And and it's you know very, very similar to every other business. Let's, yeah. let's work together to make a, a great product. Um, when you get into these rooms, though, most of the time you don't know the person very well. Yeah. Right. So like some of my favorite writers, one of my best friends that I write with, we've probably written, you know, 40 plus times together. My second favorite writer, I think me and her have written five times and we have great chemistry, which means we've sat in a room for, you know, four hours, five separate times. And that's my greatest, you know, second greatest friendship in songwriting, <laughs> which then means if I'm writing at 11 a.m. every single day, a lot of times I'm meeting people that I've never spoken with. I don't yeah. know a thing about them. I know they do music. I know they like to write. And so then you sit down, say, okay, so like, who are you? You know, <laughs> <laughs> who are you? Who are you? Know, What's your story? What? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very much a, uh, like a therapy session in a certain, you know, context because you, how, how I've explained it to people outside the industry is it's like getting naked emotionally, spiritually, and mentally with somebody you've never met before. Ooh. And it's like, Hey, I need to, I need to at least have a glimpse of the extent and the depth of your heart, the depth of your darkness and the height of your happiness. And then however your day is going today is going to dictate where we are on that mountain. Ooh. And we'll go with an idea. And now most times, you know, like most writers have um, voice memos of like, melody ideas or you write down stuff in your notes on your on your phone that will jog and and elicit a, a mini movie in your head because what we do is make three minute movies essentially yeah um and so you talk about it and what's what is crazy and, and kind of what has led to my belief of of my misdefinition of love is that our generation and this is again overgeneralization. So stick with me here a little bit, but what I continually find is that our generation has the most knowledge that human history has ever produced at its fingertips 
and we can I consistently see just misdefinitions of major facets of character development. Um, now I can speculate as to why that is, but um, it's, why do you it's, think it is? Speculate. I, I think that could get in hot water for this, but I think <laughs> that uh, it's a direct product of marriage failing. Honestly. Mm. Um, the last time I looked at stats and again, they're, they're probably wrong at this point. I'd have to relook at them. But the last time I looked at divorce rate stats, it was um, as a whole divorce was 50% ish mm-hmm. somewhere in there in the believing the faith believing community. I think it was in the 32% ish mm-hmm. range somewhere just in that. across the board. Doesn't matter what religion, right? Just, some just kind of religion. in faith com- communities. I think that was the last stat I saw. Um, again, I'd have to hit the Google machine and see what it says this time. But if children are a sponge, right, anybody that has watched a child or is in psychology would tell you that children are sponges of their environments. And if your environment coming up is a, is a broken, you're looking through broken glass to figure out what something is, then it's no wonder that you're going to go off course. Yeah. Now, and, and I don't think it necessarily, like, I can't, my parents were great. Um, marriage is tough for anybody. Mm-hmm. I had extremely supportive parents throughout my time and I still butted heads with them. Yeah. Right. And like, they always provided for me. They always loved me. Like they gave me my, my parents' parenting structure was, Hey, here's the curbs of the street. Don't go outside the curbs. If you do, we will come down hard on you. Yeah. yeah. And then, it, but you can, you can zigzag. Right. It's like zigzag side. as far as you want. But as soon as you go outside the curbs, you have been warned, you will be, you know, yeah. disciplined for that. Um, and I think that, um, even, even though my parents had a, you know, very, very, I guess what you would call successful, I loosely use that term, but, um, there's definitely many admirable parts of their marriage. I still struggled with misdefining things and, and butting heads with them. So I, a lot of songwriters that I've met, um, have come from very, very broken families. Um, and there's this thing about musicians and that's really, really true to me. And I would assume that it's true to a lot of us. Um, and I've explained it as it's similar to a runner's high or an an addiction of of some sort. Um, the most gratifying feeling in the world is being on center stage in a crowd of people is loving your music. And for a long time, for me, the most lonely moment ever was the ride home from that show. Mm. Why? Pleasing social expectations, Mm. going back to that misdefinition of love. So if I'm living for the moment where I feel accepted by people that I really don't know, right? At least much more than a surface level. It feels great when that's happening. Yep. But as soon as you remove that, it's like, wait, okay. So what, who am I? What is my identity? What do I believe? What do I want to do now that nobody's watching? You know, and so every day when, when you're writing, there's, there's aspects of diving into why is this this way? and What does that mean? And for me, a lot of that is stemmed off of my faith um, and the transformation that I've made and, and understanding. Um, <laughs> per, I, I don't know. Understanding is the right word to use, but at seeking least, to understand. Oh, becoming more aware is yeah. probably better than saying understanding. Um, but a lot of times we, we dive into that. 
mm-hmm. with songwriting. It's, it's you're seeing yourself, you're seeing each other naked, like you described. Right, exactly. And man, it's powerful. It's really powerful to be able to sit across from somebody you don't know and talk about a past breakup or talk about an addiction to X mm-hmm. or cause really the, the, what I just described as being on stage, that is addiction to its core. Yeah. It's a dopamine hit that you right. get when you're up. Exactly. There. You're, you're hijacking your pleasure systems in your brain. And as soon as you remove it, it's like, now what? Yeah. Why I need a bigger hit? Why yep. I need it? You know? Um, and so diving into that is one, it's terrifying. It's opening the door. You don't want to open in your mind at all times and you're doing it every day at 11 a.m. And so there's a lot of process, but through that, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of depression and anxiety and sadness. And I mean, shoot, if you listen to mainstream radio right now, if it's not a rap song talking about Bugattis (laughs) with a sick beat behind it, right. Or Mo Bamba or something like that. It's most often a case of we broke up. I hate you now, or I wish you would come back. Yeah. And I have no idea where to put my feelings. Or even if it is a rap song, I mean, I, the best example to me is like Future. All his songs, like Mask Off, it's him yeah. basically talking about drug addiction. Right. But like, because there's a sick beat behind it, nobody's actually listening to him right. saying, Mask, I'm taking my mask off. I'm right. over here on Percocets. Right. So even the stuff that we're not realizing is, is depressing is kind of depressing. Well, right. And so that, that kind of, is the next iteration of, of this, again, I don't want to say understanding or awareness. I by no means consider myself a mogul in philosophy or anything of that sort. But so if you take the idea that there's a, there's like a, a foundation of misdefinition going on, and then you add into the addiction aspect of that over time, right? That addiction high wears off less and less mm-hmm. from a musical standpoint, club songs, like you're saying, will be super fast and just thuds in the back. You're like, yeah, this beat's awesome. Meanwhile, the person, if you listen to the lyrics, they're like, I'm like staring at the edge of suicide. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's like, so it's this, and again, I've lived this, so I want to stick to, to my personals and not, you know, project on whoever they are, but I've lived that to where it's like, okay, so I can't seem to figure out what love is. And when I try to figure out what love is, I get high for a moment. It doesn't sustain. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, now what? Well, I might as well do it again. Mm -hmm. And then it's like peeling off a scab every time and then it rescabs. And it gets, you scar it over, you scar it over, you scar it over, you scar it. And your heart gets hardened. And then nothing works or nothing can get in there. And then relationships become shallow. And then emotions are non-existent. Or they're overly existent. Right. Right. That's, that's a fair point too. Um, but relationships become harder and, and yeah, it's, it's, I talk about this a lot in songwriting sessions as well as other songwriters that do it too. And it's, I would say that the answer to me was found in, I was raised Christian, mm-hmm. raised in the church. Didn't really believe it. I could speak the entire language of it, you know, like yeah. recite verses, pull them out everywhere. You could emotionally manipulate people and, and Absolutely. I've been there, done that, you know, Oh, you, I could feel the spirit when you prayed. Yeah, whatever. I didn't right, feel anything. Right. right. Crap. And yeah. like, I basically would, I got really good at impressing girls' fathers mm. with my knowledge of scripture. I understood the words, did not believe what they did for a, from a transformative perspective. Yeah. 
And so uh, for me, my struggle in the hardening of hearts is is the intimacy aspect. Cool. And I think that the more and more men that I talk to, like we have a small group that, that gets together every Saturday for brunch and we talk about these things as an accountability group. At first, I thought I was alone in it, but now I've realized this is kind of a widespread epidemic, which is probably in the same vein of why millennial manhood is a, is a thing. thing yeah. Right. So, so for me, it was intimacy. It was, it was a constant feeling of if I think I'm 50 cents in that girl, I, in my head, I perceive her as a dollar fifty. My value goes up by dating her. Extremely dangerous place uh, to try and find sustaining relationship. Interesting. I want to chime in real quick, if you yeah. don't mind. So something that you said about, you know, being raised in a religious household, being raised in a religious community, but not really believing any of right. it. So, you know, people ask me why I'm religious. Um, because I am very skeptical. I am very, I love learning about different religions. I'll go to a synagogue or a mosque right. or I love learning. Uh, I am an Orthodox Christian in the, right. in the very definition of the sense but there's a, a priest in Atlanta. He's an Orthodox priest. His name is Father Barnabas Powell. And he mentioned one time the best way I can possibly describe the benefits of religion. And he said, and he obviously was talking about within the context of Orthodoxy because it was a homily. Um, but he said, Orthodoxy gives me a fireplace for my fire. And that was the first time that it clicked in my head. Oh, I can either have a fireplace and help me control this flame, or I can burn the whole damn forest down. Right. Oh my gosh, that's so true. And and it just contextualized everything. And obviously, I haven't talked much about this on my podcast, but my faith journey. But that is really the mindset. I think about that quote at least once a day, That creating that fireplace for that fire. Because everything you're describing, what you're seeking is balance. Right. Like you said, you're either taking all emotion out of the equation, or you're overly emotional, or... You're, you're, it's all physical or all uh, mental or, you know, the balance comes in where you can say, hey, I can have both within reason. I can zigzag in between the lines without stepping on, on the crosswalk. Right. Right. And it's a when you don't have that fireplace or when I didn't have that fireplace this week, I wrote a song actually called The Storm. It'll probably never come out. But um, the idea, the premise behind it was I feel like a tornado trying to give hugs and kisses to people. <laughs> okay. That was the thought in my head because I was like, I know my moral compass is wrong. I know that my <laughs> actions aren't lining up with the beliefs that I've been raised to believe. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know how to get those things back on track. I don't even know what I believe maybe. At this yeah. Point. I mean, at that, yeah, it, it was so much that I ingrained a, a certain, um, edited version maybe yeah. of scripture in my head that I was like, yeah, I, I get it. I know. I know. Let's go in, you know, we'll sing our gospel songs and then like go repeat. And so finally I got to a point where I was like, all right, as one of my best friends says, I'm a terrible quarterback of my own life. Mm. As my pastor would say, I'm a terrible king of my own life. Mm. The more I dove into the Bible is where change really started happening. And in the place where I least expected it, I was never an Old Testament guy, and I ended up going there. To, I was like, I'm going to read the entire Bible, and I'm going to prove that it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Yeah. In some, in whatever I was trying to, I don't know, I was being arrogant. Right? Well, and you were also looking for something. And right. It was, it was, there was a lot of arrogance, but there was also probably a lot of hope that you would be proven wrong. I mean, I talk to young men literally all the time who are going through some sort of, and again, this is from a Christian point of view, but 
pick another point of view. It doesn't matter. Right. And they're looking for some sort of guidance. We do want the issue I have, for example, with the new atheist movement is not the fact that they're atheists. Okay. If, if you are convinced that there is no God, blah, 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 you've looked and you're, you're willing to accept that as your worldview, that's fine. My issue with that is if you're dismissing all the wisdom that has been passed on through us, right. through our ancestors for thousands of generations, right. that is way too arrogant for my taste. Right. Because you're ignoring that guidance. You're ignoring, like even the, even the uh, you know, Orthodox Jews, I don't remember, but it's like 300 and something laws that they keep, like the mitzvah right. laws. There's wisdom in those. Mm-hmm. I don't keep them. I'm not an Orthodox Jew. But there's massive amounts of knowledge and wisdom in it and guidance and a mm-hmm. fireplace. And you're just saying, oh, that's stupid. That's, uh, that's uh, you know, superstition. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, well, then what's your foundation? Right. Pick something. Oh, it's science. Well, no, the science is, science is a, is a is a way to discover whether a hypothesis is true or not. That is the definition of science. Right. Okay, so what's our hypothesis? Right. Where do we start from? Right. Sorry, that was my rant. No, no, it's, I, I love it. So going going off that point and <clears throat> going to the Old Testament, I was like, if there's any place where I'm gonna <laughs> really, you know, go to war with my faith, it's probably the start where we believe that this talking snake created birth pains. Let's, let's start there and go through what is the symbolism there right yeah in which i am not nearly educated enough nor smart enough to discuss what that means or how long the days in creation were or anything like that but um as i was going through it these these leaders of the bible who in my upbringing in church i was like these are amazing people for instance let's take david Mm -hmm. amazing guy did incredible things restored you know everything and then I'm like, that's that's the thought process I have going into it. And then I'm reading all the tales of David. Yeah, he did some up. great things, <laughs> but holy cow, did he have massive, massive, massive letdowns in his life yeah. that he created. And I was like, man, it's so like the more I dove into this stuff, the more I became aware of like, okay, so these aren't new problems that I'm struggling with. Yep. Right? These are, that one, that means that I'm not alone. And two, that means that there's other people that want to probably find something similar to this. Um, and, and it was, it was extremely humbling. And then it allowed me, th- there's this great diagram and for the, for the oral learners, this would be beneficial, but for the visual people like myself, this probably have no help at all from a podcast perspective. But if you, if you think of your, of your life as a, a, tr- a trial of ups and downs on a wave, like on a graph or something, um, that's a lot of times what it feels like. As soon as um, I introduced really diving into the spiritual aspect of it, you become aware of what sin does to you. And this is a whole different discussion altogether. But but sin is just on a negative downward plane the entire time. And God's righteousness, God's goodness is on a positive plane the entire time. And the, the more you learn, the more you understand the depths of your darkness and the greatness of what we believe is God's greatness and, and goodness and love. And then you say, well, how can I ever do this? And then you truly start to understand what, what Jesus did and that he covers that gap between those two lines. And it's, man, as soon as I started really diving into that stuff, it, it started changing a lot of stuff. And by no means am I finished product. I still suck. St- I, yeah, <laughs> I still, I am, I was made, um, uh, to be very good, and I'm prone to epic failure. Mm. You know, you know what the definition of sin is—the actual Greek definition. Uh, missing a mark. Correct. Yeah. So it's like uh, it's like shooting a bow and arrow and, and missing that. 
Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, the Greek fathers call church a hospital. It's not a courtroom. The courtroom right. concept is more of an Augustinian Western um, viewpoint. So the, the healing of the, of the human soul and, yeah. the, and um, really getting closer to the mark is what we're, you know, we're trying to figure out and identify. But where do you think personal responsibility comes in with all this? I mean, think about, you know, you're obviously in the world of, it's a very emotional world that yeah, you're in. Absolutely. Very emotional. Where where do you draw that line between coming to terms with your own feelings and emotions and also being like, okay, emotions great, but I also have like my actions have consequences. Yeah. How do how do you reconcile that? That's a great question. I think any awareness of potential starts with the accountability that you are capable of screwing up colossally okay right so it's like <clears throat> you're aware of the worst you could possibly do right so um a great mentor of mine always reminds me that you're only really three decisions away from catastrophically changing your path yeah um but once you understand that um so in my life it's it's setting up boundaries understanding Hey, if I, if I get an environment where there's X, Y, and Z, I know that I'm probably not going to be very successful in that environment. Yep. Um, so I, I think that it, it stems from awareness and taking accountability over this, those emotions is huge. Um, and trying to understand them as best as you possibly can, obviously those in that vein. Uh, but yeah, from <laughs> account, accountability is a tough one, right? So, it's, it's being able to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, you did something that one, you're not proud of. So mm-hmm. shame just derails everything in my, in my mind. And two, as a people pleaser, it's like, well, you just completely changed what you think. Like the worst case scenario in your head is now everybody believes X about you. Mm-hmm. I can't change that. And now I don't know what to do about it. But do you think that stems again from the Orange County? I've got a giant house with no furniture in it. <laughs> mindset that you grew up in? Uh, definitely in part. Yeah. If not fully, but um, yeah, I think that has a lot to play into it because something that keeps ringing in my head. So I interviewed a guy a couple podcasts ago. He actually, ironically enough, lives in Southern California. Um, and he was talking about, you know, going to therapy and he felt, you know, these issues I'm dealing with, nobody will be able to fi- fix them. I'm writing a book on this, blah, blah, blah. And then he went to a therapist and within five minutes, she was like, Oh, you have this, 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 and this. I see this all the time. And he was like, Holy crap. <laughs> People actually, you know, suffer from the same thing that I suffer from. Right. So it, it does make me wonder how much of it is environment and how much of it is you're just, not just yours, but all of our collective narcissism to an extent. Yeah. I mean, that, that rings true. Uh, my therapist would probably say the same thing about me, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Yeah, man, that's, it's, a, it's, it's tough because, uh, if I were to go back to the family structure aspect, right? Um, if your examples, whether that be coaches, teachers, father, yeah. you know, whatever the case is, if you have a difference of opinion with that person and how they, um, handle accountability and personal responsibility. Now you're trying to figure out what that looks like on your own. Right. So, um, it's, it's a pain in the ass to say that you 
did something wrong, especially in, in my world where, you know, we're, you're probably right about it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, we write about it because, you know, songs are our journals, but, but our job is to be a brand on social media. If you're going to be an artist, mm. you have to have a brand that goes with that. And exactly. you have to show your highlights at all times. Mm. Well, Hey, newsflash, I don't have nearly as many highlights as I do lowlights. Mm. Right. But when I'm able to understand those lowlights, I can then have highlights. Yeah. And so at, at what's the, what's the proper ratio of, of accountability in that aspect? And a lot of that for me, and I don't know how much more time we have for this, because this is a whole other discussion entirely, but in a, in a very, very truthful place that I think would be beneficial to the point of millennial manhood is that um, for me, relationship and intimacy uh, was a, is a huge struggle for me. Accept, acceptance falls into that category. And so uh, from, a, from a very young age, my definition of acceptance, as I've kind of previously discussed here, but you add into the fact of uh, the emotional intimacy from a female, mm-hmm. right? And so um, I would date, I was a serial dater, just date and date and date and date, and then thought love was strictly physical. Mm-hmm. Disregarding the love is more service than yeah. anything. Yeah, sacrifice. Right. And so that led to become an addiction of sorts, right? And then something that I know statistically, which is a little awkward to talk about in public, but statistically speaking, I am with about 96% of men in the world is is pornography. Mm -hmm. Pornography is, to this day, one of my biggest struggles that within my accountability group, I have to talk about or else it will derail everything again. And it's, it's a taboo subject that's, that is awkward to talk about. See, I wish it wasn't a taboo subject because we've, all right, I guess we're going to talk about porn yeah, now. We're going to, we're going to go for we're it. We're going to go for it. I'm putting my pen, pen and paper down. So, <laughs> so what's interesting to me from a technological standpoint, so I've listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books, cause I'm fascinated by how our brains work mm-hmm. and porn in particular with young men. Yeah. So uh, you talked about divorce rates earlier. Divorce rates are plummeting amongst millennials because millennials aren't getting married. Okay. Yeah. Um, my person, this is just my bro science theory <laughs> on why millennials aren't getting married. It's both men and women, but it's millennial manhood. So we'll focus on the men. You can get the things you would get out of marriage, uh, psychologically from other factors. Mm-hmm. So if you're a man, you can get it through porn because the number one reason men got married throughout history was to have sex. Men want to spread their seed. It's facts, biology. But now you, you're just like, dude over here is like, well, let me ha- check out Pornhub and I can fulfill whatever fantasy I possibly want to. Mm-hmm. Why, why, would I, why would I look for a real human being? Oh, I can Tinder both guys and girls. I can just swipe right and feel good about people are like me and are giving me attention, but never actually take action on any of it right. and never actually go on a date and never actually meet a real human being. Right. And on top of that, with the Tinder thing, judgment at the same time. Oh, yeah. Putting people beneath me that I'm like, no, you're not good enough. Or yes, you are good enough. Or yes. No. Right. So that's an addictive trait that manifests our human DNA, really. Well, and, and what's most interesting to me is we don't know how to handle that. So actually, Tamara and I were talking about this last night. We were talking about how in the last 200 years, the world has changed so much. So basically, Tamara was like, anybody who lived before indoor plumbing should have an automatic like uh, 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 pass to heaven because like, man, that's a hard life to live. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was just saying, like, babe, think about this. 
between 10,000 years ago, where agriculture really happens in Mesopotamia, okay, we build cities and things like that, between 10,000 years ago and 200 years ago, life really wasn't that different. Yeah, there were some technological advances, but over, yeah, there was more literate people, but overall, life was almost identical. Between 200 years ago and today, dude, the world is like the world my grandfather was born into and the world my kid will be born into aren't even remotely the same. Yeah. And we don't know as human beings how to adapt to that. We do, guys, we don't know how to adapt to the fact that we can pull up a computer and literally fulfill any fantasy ever. Even in the 70s, if you looked at porn, uh, you 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 have to use a magazine and still use your imagination. Magazine or go to a movie theater. Which yeah. Is a public place. Right? Exactly. And get shamed <laughs> and, and, and run the risk of being shamed in public. So. Right. Again, it goes back to the personal responsibility portion. And I was eventually going to tackle porn on this podcast anyway, but with a professional who actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, definitely not a professional. Yeah, yeah. So we're (laughs) bro-sciencing here. But I I just think going back to the personal responsibility part, and nobody talks about basically, particularly amongst young men. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about 25 to 35-year-old men, millennial manhood, that group. It's almost shameful to talk about the struggles you have in life. We've lost the sense of community. We don't have bowling leagues anymore. We don't, we, you know, we, we don't function in a society where, hey, you have one town doctor and everybody knows a doctor. We don't, we, we don't have those social circles anymore. So there's no place to, in confidence, talk to people and learn from other people and not reinvent the wheel. Right. And, and we talked about it earlier before we started recording how popular this podcast is from a number standpoint. I think that's why, because yeah. people are actually gravitating to, Oh, I can learn something from the dumb shit so-and-so did <laughs> without right. doing it. Right, right. Well, and I think – so, again, making it personal, I think that the two biggest things that were struggles – that continue to be struggles for me with pornography is, one, um, it's unbelievably unrealistic. Yes. Right? So you fulfill whatever fantasy you need or you want. And then you, if you do try and go date somebody, you're setting that person up for failure, mm-hmm. right? From any, whatever your fantasy is to whatever their fantasies are, right? Like from a physical standpoint. Yeah. And this is coming from somebody that, again, Christian, who is really, really struggled with the physical aspect of intimacy. Yeah. Right. So like, there's a lot of hypocrisy in what I'm saying and what I believe, which is congruent with about every person in the Bible. Yeah. But well, it's also a thought experiment. Right. So, so there's that. Uh, but number one is that you're setting up, I was setting up and continue to set up absolutely unrealistic expectations for potential partners. Oh. Number two, and I'd love to hear whatever the professional you have on on this topic, but number two, which is even more dangerous really, is that according to my therapist as well as myself – I almost never watched the same video twice. Oh yeah, have you ever heard about marrying a porn star? No. Oh, that it's a terrifying. it's an interesting social experiment. For three days, decide you're only going to watch, or like whatever time period. But the the original article that I read said three days. Pick only one porn star you're you're going to watch, and see how quickly you get bored with porn. It could be different videos, right. but only one person. Yeah. Right. Well, and so. Right. If you go back to conditioning, I am rewiring my brain to tell me through pleasure sensors in my brain Mm -hmm. 
the same person is not enough. Yep. Now, if we go back to my original hypothesis that um, companionship and marriage is faltering, man, there's a pretty obvious line between those two things in my head. Yep. And so where this, this whole transformation for me on, or I wouldn't call it a transformation, the awareness aspect of it, of, Hey man, you need to, you need to get it together or whoever you tell you you're going to love someday until death do us part. You'll never be happy. You will never, ever be happy. And happiness. You want another quote from father Barnabas pal. <laughs> he was telling about a story where, um, one of his parishioners was, was confessing to him that he was going to leave his wife for his mistress. Wife, he has wife, three kids, three or four kids, right. whatever. He's going to leave his wife for his mistress. And he said, Father, don't I deserve to be happy? And uh, apparently Father Barnabas Powell responded with and said, no, you don't. You deserve to be good. Yeah. Happiness is a byproduct of being good. Yeah. Absolutely. And that blew my mind too. I was like, oh. <clears throat> well, and this, this kind of jogged something in my head where we talk about in music a ton. I'm just waiting for inspiration. I'm waiting to be inspired. Inspiration does not sustain. Transformation does, though. Mm. You can be inspired, but if inspiration leads to transformation, you got something. If inspiration is there for inspiration's sake, it'll fade, and then you're going to need inspiration again. And so I think one of the struggles of myself and that I see in songwriting rooms and friends and people that I trust is that um, it's a continual Let's get high on something quick until it runs out. And then when it runs out, I don't know where to go and I don't know what to do. And then the accountability aspect of that, I don't want to take accountability for the fact that I just dug myself into a trench. So now I'm going to throw all my problems on this person that I'm going to date. Hopefully that they can figure out, well, Hey, guess what? They're in their own trench. Yep. And And none of us are talking about our trenches. And no, and nobody's talking about how to fix these things. Um, And that was my white flag moment of like, this isn't it. Yeah. I can't I can't live like this and become the person that I want to be and become the person that God has called me to be. Mm-hmm. And so the more I leaned into that, oh, <laughs> I remember my my literal white flag moment was I was praying. I was like, hey, God, um, I I really dislike praying because I don't know what this looks. I, I just it's weird. I feel like I'm talking to a ceiling and yeah. I don't know what's going on. <clears throat> but um, I need guys that are struggling in the same areas as I am. And that are looking for answers the same way that I am and people that are, that are courageous enough, honest enough, and, um, aware enough to talk about these things because I'm tired of trying to fight this fight on my own. Mm. <clears throat> uh, not two weeks later, I get a phone call from a guy that, uh, is like, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm interviewing at your office and I live in California and uh, I didn't know you worked there, but I just got a job there. I'd love to get get some food with you. Yeah. This is and, back, back before you went musical time. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and we end up living together. Yeah. He gets the job guy. I hadn't talked to since high school. Wild. After that, I'm at the YMCA working at, out, uh, about to play basketball. And the guy I went to elementary school was there <laughs> back in California. Yeah. I'm here in Nashville. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And, uh, he's like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm, I just, I'm here. I'm working. Uh, kind of looking for a community group, like an accountability group. I was like, Hey, I, I know another guy and we're all from the same area. You should come hang. <clears throat> we, we started getting brunch. There was four of us that ended up getting together. Um, all former athletes. We started getting brunch every Saturday to talk about these things. And our group has grown to like 15 or 20 people. You know? And it was, 
that was I don't know. I my beliefs would tell me that that was that was God driven. Yeah. Doors open that shouldn't. I I feel like the 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 war of that. Well, <clears throat> I don't think it'll ever go away. But the fact that I have people to talk about it with and will honestly tell me, "Hey, man, are you struggling? Are you yeah, good? Yeah. Like, where are you? Where's your heart at?" Yeah. You know, when I have people that are honest, and, and we'll call just, you out on your when you're full of crap because you're a great liar. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I got a song called "Good Liar." <laughs> but um, all of those all those guys had similar stories to mine, where it was like, "Look, I I thought I was going to marry this girl, or I thought I was going to." I thought this girl was the one and then it fell apart and it was right after I was done playing. So my identity, I was in an identity crisis. I didn't, I'm no longer the athlete. Who am I? Yeah. Uh, I got cut by, you know, whatever the Cardinals. Or, right. <laughs> right. Or, or from a, a international basketball team yeah, yeah. or, um, you know, whatever the case is, it's like, okay, so who am I at the end of the day? Because I know whoever I am right now is not who I want to be when I'm standing on an altar with somebody. Cause I do want to be a husband. I yeah. do want to be a dad. I very, very much look forward to that moment. Yeah. I also understand that I am not fit for that moment at the, at this moment in time. So I don't know how we got all the way over here but from songwriting. But yeah, uh, well, I mean, about. that's the beauty of songwriting. That's the beauty. That's why I was so excited about this podcast. We'll probably do a part two at some point because we're running up on time. But, um, you know, I like getting into the philosophical discussions and I like exploring. This is the podcast and this is more um, – credit to you than an insult to me but this is the podcast that I prepared for the least just because <laughs> i knew from our previous conversations i was like i want this to just run on whatever track it needs to run typically i've got you know i've got a pretty detailed framework or where i want the conversation to go here i was like screw it. i'm just gonna let willie run with it and we'll go from there yeah um, I, I like to talk so that's a good thing <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so uh but i always like to add, you know ask this question at the end of every podcast mm-hmm. If you could go back to 18-year-old Willie, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed Willie, okay? Yeah. And knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know about life in general, what's one piece of advice you would give 18-year-old Willie right now? Wow. I think it would be probably a full-on essay. I think the first thing that I would want to discuss with 18-year-old Willie is that uh, when you get to um, a certain stage in your life, um, it's okay that your parents aren't perfect. Mm, That's, yeah. Don't punish them for that. They're humans. They That's a hard pill to swallow, man. They too are humans and have downfalls. Um, and don't use that as a club to beat them with. Yeah. Right? So I think that goes back to the area. Second thing, physical intimacy will never sustain you if that's all that you have with it. Ooh. Probably could have said that better. But um, you're not going to find that missing hole in your heart through the physical acts with another human being. Um, lastly, being the king of your own life is impossible. It doesn't probably be the, the, the big three. three. Yeah. Cause well, you're prone to failure. So that's, that's powerful words, man. That's uh, well, let me ask you this. Did this conversation go better or worse than what you expected? Uh, I feel like it was kind of an abstract painting, <laughs> uh, kind of a little all over the place, but I think it went really we, well. So we went to a museum, put a box in the middle and said, this is art. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Some artist is going to walk up and be like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. But no, I'd love to do it again, man. And, and maybe try and have a little bit more, like have a topic that we go for. Cause I felt like I was all over the place, but yeah. Um, well, we're, we're starting a second podcast called raise your glass, which will be more of a, uh, instead of an interview format, it's going to be more of just a round table discussion format. Yeah. Um, so 
more info coming to that in the future. We haven't recorded anything yet, we, but we've got a logo. We've got the RSS feed, all that good stuff. We just need to coordinate a little bit better. But uh, here's your opportunity to plug whatever you want to plug. I'm assuming your social media, your music, <laughs> your whatever it may be. Yeah, man. I, so my name is Willie Shaw. I do music. Uh, it's obviously something I'm very passionate about. Uh, you can find me on social medias at Willie Shaw Music. But um, really, man, that's that's not as important as the topics that were discussed today and throughout your podcast. I'll put your I'll put your contact info in, yeah, the, in the description that. anyway. Go down, look, pull up Spotify, pull up Apple Music, go bump some Willie Shaw. <laughs> it's it's very Bruno Mars ish slash JT. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you like it. Yeah. But more importantly, man, over more important than that is go find community. Yeah. Go find, go community. find community. It's okay to be just a great poet by the name of Chris Martin. who's a cold play. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up now that I had this epic intro. Uh, just because you're losing doesn't mean you're lost. Ooh, I think we may have a, a title to the podcast. Like, <laughs> go find community or, or since you're losing, just because you're losing doesn't mean you're lost. Yeah. Well, for everybody listening, again, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com if you want to holler at us. Uh, slide in our DMs, all that good stuff. Drew Davis made fun of me last night for saying slide in our DMs all the time. But again, uh, uh, constructive criticism only, no criticism, unless you're willing to offer a solution. So don't just complain. Uh, but outside of that, we'll, we'll talk to you guys later. Peace.